Good morning and a warm welcome to you to Lady Well Baptist Church and to our service of worship this Sunday. It's a fantastic way for us to begin our week together by coming into God's presence and preparing ourselves for whatever will lie ahead over the coming seven days by worshipping him and devoting ourselves to him that he might inform us and instruct us in the way that we should go. As we begin this new week, just one reminder to you that we have our prayer meeting and Bible study on at half past seven on Wednesday evenings on Zoom. And it would be fantastic if you were able to come and join us in that as we go through Matthew's Gospel and spend time praying for our church, for our community here in Livingston and for the wider world. As we begin our time together this morning, we're going to hear from Psalm 63. And there we read... O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. It may be that as you come to worship this morning, you don't feel as if you are longing for God. Maybe um, you're just happy you've managed to get out of bed this morning and uh, that you've managed to settle down and uh, get this on your phone or your tablet or the television or however it is uh, you're watching this. And yet even as we recognize that sometimes we're weary, we're tired, we're perhaps frustrated at the week gone by, We've got to recognize as we come into God's presence that this is how we thirst and hunger for God. We come before him and we feel perhaps just at the end of our tether. We've really got very little else left in the tank this week. And it's a recognition that we need God as we prepare to begin a whole new week with all of the stresses and strains and joys that that will bring, that we need him. We need him to build us up, to strengthen us, to equip us so that we're able to go and live for him and uh, stay faithful to him over this coming week. And so as we begin our time together, let's come together in prayer for ourselves and for the wider fellowship gathering this morning, that we would be able to worship God in this time in recognition of our need for him in this hour and on into the rest of the week. So let's pray together. Gracious Lord, loving Heavenly Father, you are the one that we seek. Lord God, it doesn't matter how good or how bad, how enjoyable or how challenging this past week has been. Lord, it doesn't matter how, um, how we are looking to the coming seven days, how daunted we are, how concerned or worried we might be over what this coming week will hold. We recognize all of this speaks to our need to come into your presence. And so, Lord God, help us to recognize our hunger and our thirst for you. And Lord, in this time together, as we come before your word, as we uh, humble ourselves in prayer, we ask that we would meet with you, that you would indeed bless us and build us up so that we might glorify your name in our lives and whatever we have uh, to face this coming week. And Lord God, that we might be able to to be encouraged ourselves, to know that we have met with a living God and he has blessed us beyond measure. 
Lord, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and all that he has done for us in becoming our sacrifice, paying the price for our sins so that we might come into your presence, that we might know you and so be able to glorify you, love you over this coming week. Lord God, we recognize over the last week we haven't perhaps lived as we ought to have done, and so we ask for your forgiveness. We pray that you would, Lord, wipe us clean, that you would set our feet back on the path that we ought to walk on, and Lord, over this coming week, you would preserve us in that way. So, Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon each one of us gathered in Jesus' name this morning, that as a fellowship we might be united around Christ, and we might be sent out into the world this week to live for him and to love him. And Lord God, we ask that you would bless us in this way, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing our studies in Genesis this morning, and we're going to be considering together Genesis 28 through to 31, which is a fair-sized chunk of, of the book of Genesis. We're not going to be reading all of that, though. We're going to be picking up in Genesis 29, reading from verses 1 through to 30. And I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, to open it to Genesis 29, where we'll read together. We pick up the story looking particularly at the life of Jacob. We considered Isaac and Rebekah last week, and uh, as they began to have a family of their own, and all of this, the stresses and the struggles of their family life began to manifest, we're going to pick up now in the life of their son, Jacob, who we remember received a blessing, the birthright and the blessing that should have gone to his elder brother Esau and has been given to Jacob. He tricked his brother and his father out of that birthright and out of that firstborn's blessing because God had said to Rebekah, his mother, that it would be Jacob that would be the one through whom he would bring about the saviour he had promised Adam and Eve so long ago. And so now we pick up in Genesis 29 and the story of Jacob. So in verse 1 we read, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well, and see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. 
As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and I will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. This is God's word, and we ask that he add his blessing to our reading of it this morning. Let's pray together for our church and for our world. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we confess our great need of you. Lord, it is not just that we know we need you. We long, Lord, to be a transformed people. Lord, people who love one another, who love you, who sacrifice and serve and worship. Lord, we recognize so often over the course of an average week our failure in this area of life. And Lord, as we look to the coming seven days, we recognize that we will fail. And yet, Lord, you are a God of grace who forgives, who loves and draws us back into your presence again and again and again. And Lord, you do so because you know that in Christ we are secure with you. Lord, there is no need for you to give up on us or lay us aside because you know the work that you have begun in us you will one day complete because of the perfect nature of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. And so we give you praise and thanks that you will always stay faithful to us. It is in your nature to do so. And Lord God, as we prepare to go out into the rest of this week and live for you and uh, serve you, Lord, we ask that you would send us out in that knowledge, that we are able to live, Lord, and strive for you, knowing that we certainly will fail, but that is not the end. And Lord, it is our desire that we would worship you, not just in this time together, but over the course of the next seven days. Lord God, we want to make your name known in Ladywell and in Livingston. 
Lord, we want to praise your name, not just in song, but in service. And so we ask, Lord, that as you bless us in this time with the knowledge of your presence, may that knowledge carry us out into the coming rest of the week, wherever we are, with family or with friends, at work or at home. Lord, may we know you go with us to build us up and strengthen us that we might not just be faithful to you in our praise, but Lord, in the small acts that we do, the small things that we say, over the course of our lives. Lord God, we want to serve you. Father, we thank you that each week we are able to do so through a myriad of of small ways, but we thank you particularly for the community fridge this morning. Lord, we ask that you would bless those who serve each Friday. Lord, may they be able to share the grace of Christ with those who come into our church looking uh, for for the simple stuff that they need for life, for food and for uh, something to drink, Lord, for um, toiletries and the essentials that they need. And Lord, may they leave this building knowing not just that they have been served by a caring, loving group of people, but that there is uh, a loving God who sits behind them and leads them to serve in this way and can transform their lives if they would come and cast themselves upon Christ. Lord, bless our town as we serve you in this place. Heavenly Father, we pray as well for the wider world and ask that you would be with us as we seek to make your name known, not just in Livingston or even in Scotland, but all across the world. Lord, as we look to the end of the month and our harvest celebration, we'll be thinking about your work going on in Chad and indeed across the rest of Africa, but in Chad particularly. And Lord, we ask that you would bless our support of that work going on there. Lord God, healthcare work is essential and yet, Lord, it is a part of the kingdom work we are engaged in making the name of Jesus known all over the world. And so we pray that you would bless those workers through BMS and other agencies in Chad as they seek to care for men and women made in the image of God through physical, practical health care means, but also through the sharing of the gospel. Lord God, we pray as well for the rest of your church, not just connected to us, but all over this world, men and women that we will never see or know in this life, but we will one day meet in glory. Lord God, may your kingdom grow in this world, that in your mercy you would share the gospel with those who live in parts of the world where there is very little by way of Christian witness. There is hardly a church anywhere. And yet, Lord, through the power of your word and your spirit, May you make yourself known to men and women, sinners living in darkness, who can, by your grace, be snatched away from that kingdom and transferred to the kingdom of your beloved Son. Lord, may your kingdom grow and expand in this world. Lord, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would do this because we cannot do it ourselves. And so we need your strength, your power, your sufficient grace to see this great work done. Lord God, we ask that you might bless us and bless our world, for you alone are able. And we ask it all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.
I picked up a new book the other day um, in the habit of regularly uh, reading and quite often uh, rereading old books uh, that I've read before. But I picked up a new one and did what I always tend to do when I pick up a new book is I start reading the story. And as I get to know the characters and, and the plot of the story, immediately then skip towards the end of the book and read the last few chapters and find out how it all ends. It's a horrible thing that, that I always do when I get a book. I can't stop myself. I cannot read a book with the suspense of not knowing how it's all going to work out, which characters are still going to be around come the end, how will the, the plot have, have resolved itself, where will we be and, and If it leads into another book, where will we be going uh, in that book to come? I really wish that I was able to just live in the the not knowing and finding out as the story uh, winds itself along, but I'm just not able to. I have to know uh, the end of the story right from the beginning. And quite often uh, that's the case with Scripture. When we read Scripture, we have some idea, don't we, of how the story ends. Even if we don't know the Bible that well, we, if we've read any of it, we'll have some grasp of what the, the, the line of the story will be, where it begins in Genesis, where it ends uh, in Revelation. We have some idea. And it might be, as we read along, we don't know how this particular part of that great narrative will fit into the whole and yet as the story goes on uh, we will figure that out we know ultimately though where it's all going and as we come to this story uh, in Genesis this point in the story as uh, God's people uh, are are, um, being led along by God through this journey that will ultimately one day culminate in the coming of Jesus as a sacrifice for the sins not just of his people in in Israel but for all over the world, we get to one of these little parts where there is great uncertainty, certainly in the life of Jacob. You will remember how last week we talked about Isaac and Rebekah and again in each part of this narrative there are questions over how on earth God's promises will ever be fulfilled. And sometimes we miss that because we know how the story ends. But in Isaac and Rebecca's life, Isaac is growing older and uh, hasn't had any children, isn't married. He gets married slightly later in life, has children slightly later in life after a time where it was clear Rebecca wasn't able to have children. And there was a great question at that point in the family of God's story as to how God would resolve this problem. He'd made all these promises and they can't be fulfilled because this couple are childless. So now we come to this point where Jacob has tricked his father and his oldest brother Esau out of his birthright and his rightful inheritance as the firstborn son. And Esau is understandably filled with anger (laughs) towards his brother. You would be if your younger brother had just tricked you out of everything that was owed to you by right uh, and uh, had, had left you essentially with nothing. And uh, as Jacob realizes that this will not end well for him, he flees. His mother tells him to get up and flee to uh, their family back where where she came from, Laban, and uh, that part of Abraham's family. Just get up and go, get out of here before Esau comes for you uh, to reclaim his birthright by killing you. And so Jacob flees. And we might well wonder at this point, 
how on earth God is going to deal with this problem. Because he has said that the younger brother will serve, that the older brother will serve the younger. Jacob is the one through whom the promises of God are going to be worked out. And yet now he is leaving the area of, of Canaan, the promised land that he's supposed to inherit somehow. He is leaving on his own. He is not married. He has no family. And there's no one to protect him or care for him. And so he, he will not be um, the deliverer of the promise that Abraham will be the father of many nations. He, he's on his own, completely alone. And as we see him going, there is clearly a great problem in this man's life where he is deceitful. He steals. He cheats. He's sly. And we are right, I think, to be concerned that such a man as this will not be suitable to follow in God's way. He, he seems to not want to follow in God's way. He's a deceitful man. And so we have cause for concern that this will not be someone who God will be his God and you will be my people. Is this the kind of people that God wants? It's a huge challenge as we read the story. And it's easy for us looking back, but as we think about Jacob and his family, as they are looking to the future, they're going to be filled with questions and with doubts. And this is exactly why I think Moses records Genesis for the people of Israel. Remember, Moses is writing this down for Israel as they've left slavery in Egypt and they're heading towards the promised land. They know where they ought to be going, but they're stuck in the wilderness Wandering for decades, never getting to this place. And rightly, they will be questioning, will we ever inherit this land God has promised? Will we ever be this people that God has said we will be? Does God want us? He's abandoned us in a desert. They're questioning. Will we see the fulfillment of these promises? And so in recording all of these stories with all of their ups and downs, telling them where they've come from, Moses gives them comfort and hope. And as we read it today, we can receive comfort and hope as we recognize our lives are not so different. We long to see the promise of God to make us holy fulfilled because we're not and we struggle with sin all the time. We long to have that home with God that he's promised us forever and we wonder when is it coming because Jesus came 2,000 years ago and he hasn't come back yet. Is he ever going to come? And sometimes we wonder when we look at ourselves and we look at our churches, are we a people that God has set apart for himself because we don't look that different to anybody else. At the moment, we might be questioning that, particularly during lockdown. We can't even gather together and be a family. What is going on? Has God just abandoned us completely? Well, we're given hope. Because the main thought behind all of these stories that we've read so far is that God is sovereign over all things. God is in complete control. That's what sovereignty means, that God has both the ability, the power, and the right to order everything in all the world to fit with his plan. And so no matter how difficult things get, how hard life is, how awkward all things may appear to be at that time for God's people, God is still in control and is still fulfilling his plans and his purposes. And so we find today that we live before a sovereign God. So this morning, as we examine this idea a little more closely, and as we look about the life of Jacob, 
We know how the story starts and how the story ends. Jacob knows how the story starts and how it ought to end too. But he doesn't know how he's going to get from A to B. And neither do we in our lives. So, as we come to chapters 28 through 31, we're helped enormously. We find firstly in chapter 28 that the Lord will be with us wherever we go. Now, I don't mean that just in in simple physical terms, whether we are in a church building or whether we're at work or at home or or visiting friends or family or gone abroad on a holiday or whatever it might be. I don't mean it quite in that way, although that is certainly included. But wherever we go in life, whatever circumstances we face, the Lord will be with us. Jacob is told that the Lord will be with him wherever he goes, despite the fact he's walking away from the promised land. And Moses uses that language that crops up a lot in Genesis, that um, Jacob is going to the east. The east is away from Israel, away from what will become Jerusalem. It is moving away from where God is, as it were. It crops up a lot where people go towards the east or come from the east towards Uh, God's people. They're drawing closer to God's presence. Jacob is moving away from the promised land. He seems to be abandoning the promise of God that this will be where his people live. This is the land for them. And he encounters um, God in this peculiar dream that he has in chapter 28. He um, He camps for the night and has this dream that there is Um, A ladder, as it were, a staircase between earth and heaven. And angels are descending and ascending on this staircase. And he um, receives revelation from God. And this is God reminding him in this ladder dream that there is no separation, as it were. no, No great gulf between heaven and earth. That wherever he is, God can also be. He's, God is not so distant from him that they can't ever um, be together. That he can't know God and follow him and serve him. God will always be right there for all that God is in heaven. These are not two separate realities, but they exist in, in some sense together. And so God will always be with his people wherever they go, which is a huge encouragement to someone who associates God's presence with a particular place and a particular family that he's abandoning to save his own skin. We find in verse 15 these words, Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. You're going the wrong way. I'm taking you what seems to be the wrong way, but I'm not abandoning you. I go with you wherever you are and I will bring you back because I have promised, says God. And again, we remember that Israel is hearing this story in the wilderness after leaving Egypt. And what comfort must this be to them? They're not in the promised land. They haven't claimed that they've left behind everything they know, all the comforts and so on that they once knew. However harsh life was for them in Egypt, that was familiar. And even in this wilderness, they hear these words, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. The promise of God to be a nation, to have a place to be safe and secure and to to worship God and have him rule over them. And as we wonder in the wilderness of this sinful world, we have that same struggle as Israel, as Jacob, don't we? 
How to stay faithful to God with the whole world pushing against us to to move away from Him, to forget His ways and abandon Him. How do we stay faithful in that context? How do we see lives grow in faithfulness and in fruitfulness? And how do we see our church grow in light of all the opposition that we face in the world? Well, we've been told by God that we will be saved and our future is secure in him. It's in his hands. He is controlling all things. He has saved us. He will never leave us. He will see us grow in holiness and into maturity as we follow him and read his word and submit to him in in prayer and in worship and so on. And so we know that we are his and that he will stay faithful to us. Our problem is in knowing how on earth we can stay faithful to him. Well, Jesus' work on the cross makes sure that we will never be turned out by God for failure. And so we are able to live knowing that we will fail, but that we can always strive to grow and be better in the knowledge that Christ will never abandon us, but will seek to lead us on and build us up. The answer is ultimately that like Jacob and like Israel, God goes with us through Christ wherever we go. This is why John chapter 1 is so important in John's Gospel where we read that Jesus is the Word of God from before the foundation of the world, that all of creation was made in and through him, and yet that same Word, Jesus, God, comes and dwells, makes his home, camps with us where we are. He becomes just like one of us. Wherever we are, he is with us. And so we find that Christ is with us right now and will be with us for eternity to come. And so practically, daily, we find out, we find that we are able to live for Christ because he walks with us, understands our sufferings, recognizes where we're going to fail, builds us up, strengthens us by his Holy Spirit and through his word as we read it, and daily intercedes with the Father for our good, for our betterment, constantly. And although we seem to lose out on everything through our sin, although we struggle to live for him, we find that Jesus gives us freedom from sin, both in terms of the punishment for sin, which is uh, death, but also the daily entanglement with sin that we experience, so that as day follows day, sin's grip is loosened on our lives that we're no longer bound to walk in that way because we see a better way. For all that we are making baby steps right now, one day we will be walking unaided, as it were. As a child grows in maturity over time, so will we. And Christ leads us in that way, which is why he says in Matthew 11, to take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This is the better way to live because it honours me. And it honors my Father who sent me. And it accords with your nature as a human being made in the image of God. And so although it will be a challenge, you will find living consistently will give you strength. And so we find that the Lord will be with us wherever we go in life, however hard life may happen to be. We find moving into chapter 29 that the Lord will reveal himself to us whatever is happening. It's not just that God is there and we can't see him, so we just have to trust that he is there supporting us. He actually reveals himself, his presence to us 
in any circumstance, at any time. And so we find that um, in, uh, in Jacob's life, Jacob in verses 1 through 14 comes, uh, chapter 29, comes to the land of Laban, his relative, and he meets Rachel and her older sister Leah. Now it's interesting, Rachel is the most beautiful woman he has ever seen and Leah is described as having weak eyes. Now we don't know what that means. We don't know if it means that Leah um, had a squint or was cross-eyed or had eyes that protruded slightly. or We don't know what it is, but she has some physical problem that, that makes her, by the standards of the time, unattractive. And Rachel has, Leah has always stood in the shadow of her younger and more beautiful sister and receives the ultimate insult. Here this, um, this family member from miles away arrives and he's looking for a wife and he meets them both and instead of the eldest sister being put forward for marriage, which is the custom, he pursues the younger and ignores Leah altogether. And as we move into verses 15 and 20, we find that he lives with them for a month, being taken in by his family member, his uncle, Laban. And Laban asks him what he wants to do, what his wages should be, because he can't just live and work for nothing. And Jacob says, I I would like to marry your daughter. And so he says, I'll work for seven years if you will let me marry Rachel and have her as my wife. Now, just to pause for a moment here, in simple money terms, it was standard for someone to come uh, and to, to pay a price to a father so that, that the father would um, let him marry his daughter. It's called a bride price. And if you were to turn seven years of labor into, into wages, physical wages, money, that's about three and a half times what a man would ordinarily offer his future father-in-law as the price for this bride. His offer is a ridiculous sum of money, a huge amount more than, than you would ordinarily offer. And as soon as Jacob makes that offer, Laban knows, I've got you. Because if you're willing to offer that kind of payment for, for my daughter, I know you'll do anything for me. He's got him right where he wants him. And now we find the twist in the story of Jacob, the liar, the cheater, the swindler, the sly character. We find that he has nothing on his uncle Laban. Laban manages to swindle him out of the thing that he promises to work for. Now, Just to pause for a minute, I realize that in today's culture, talking about the buying and selling of women as if they are chattels um, is completely unacceptable. And the Bible doesn't make this a positive thing. In fact, when we read about men taking multiple wives and buying their wives and so on, it never ends well. It's simply a feature of the culture of their time for all that we might struggle with it. And so the Bible is describing something that exists and not making a a positive or negative statement either way about it, just simply saying this happened. And we find that Jacob works for seven years and it seems like nothing to him because this woman is the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. In in, uh, verses 1 through 30, when he first first encounters Rachel, he bursts into tears. He's just completely overwhelmed by this woman. She is his dream girl. And we find Laban tricks him. We are reminded of Jacob's past sinful deceitfulness to his own father in the trickery of Laban. What we find is that 
um, on their wedding night, this veiled woman is sent to, to go um, to the, the, the tent of Jacob. And it's not Rachel. He's worked for seven years. And Laban sends in Leah. And it's dark. And Jacob's almost certainly had an awful lot to eat and plenty to drink and so on. And he doesn't notice. And they wake up in the morning and in the passage, it's almost comical in the way it's delivered. Um, it says, and behold, it wasn't Rachel, it was Leah. He's shocked when he sees her. What are you doing here? You're supposed to be Rachel. And we can only imagine how hurtful that is to Leah. But as Jacob goes to his father-in-law and rightfully frustrated, says, what on earth have you done? Laban delivers a line which reveals, I think, something of a rebuke on the part of God to Jacob. It's not the done thing here for the younger to be preferred over the older. We find that Jacob is being reminded that he has tricked his older brother out of his birthright. Now, God has said that the younger will rule over the older, that Jacob will be the one, but at no point did God say that Jacob should lie and cheat his way to that end. And yet we find this is exactly what Jacob has done. And now he's on the receiving end of it. And he understands the pain of what he's done to his older brother. He's been tricked. Laban has done to him. Perhaps knowing what happened, what Jacob did, he has delivered uh, his own retribution, as it were. And then we find that Jacob has to work another seven years to get the wife that he desires. But he does it because she's worth it. And in verse 29 through to 35, we have one of the most tragic sections of Genesis so far. We have this poor woman, Leah, who's been part of a trick. She's been married in a deceitful manner to this man. So she's stuck with him as her husband for the rest of their natural lives. And he doesn't love her. And he doesn't even really want to know her. And as she begins to have children for him, she rightfully thinks that this will win his favor because the great dream in the ancient world, as in so many parts of the world today, is that they would have a son and an heir to take the father's place when he dies. And she delivers him sons. Son after son after son is born. And with each successive one, she says, maybe this time he will love me. Maybe this time he will listen to me. Maybe this time he'll notice I exist. And the names of each of the sons that she provides for Jacob echo those sentiments that he would love me, that he would notice me, that he would hear my voice, that he would see that I'm there, that he would care for me. And it's painful to hear this woman's loneliness, the plaintive cry that she has that a husband would care just a, a, a modicum for her. And he never does. And then she realizes that she is looking for love in the wrong place. And she reaches that point where she recognizes that only God can be the one who will ever provide her with the love she needs. And so eventually she stops naming her sons for the things she wants from her husband and starts thinking about the Lord and his love for her, his steadfast faithfulness to her and her place with him. God will fulfill her in this life. A husband, as great a blessing as that is, children, as wonderful a blessing as that is, never will. Because they're human. And they're frail and weak and will let her down ultimately. 
the Lord reveals himself to Jacob and reveals himself to Leah, regardless of what is going on in their lives. In fact, through what is going on in their lives, he reveals himself and speaks to them powerfully. He begins to transform their lives. And so it is with us that he speaks to us through the events, the circumstances we are going through. He reveals that he is there, that he alone is worthy to be praised and worshipped and glorified and lived for. Because when we do, he never lets us down. He never fails us. When people, not meaning to, but simply because they're people, ultimately will. Through Laban's trickery, we also see our own sinfulness for what it is. We sometimes, through the experiences of our lives, are made aware of just how sinful we are. And we see in the injustice and the indignation expressed by Jacob, and the indignation we felt in our own lives when we have been wronged, and we feel we want to see that put right and justice uh, performed, we recognize that how, uh, how much our sin must grieve a holy God, a perfectly holy and just God. We see how sorry our performance before God has been, how often we have let him down, and we marvel at his grace and his mercy that he persists with us, he reveals himself to us, and he leads us on even when we have failed him and committed the most heinous of sins. And it should help us see not just how humble we ought to be before God, how awesome our God truly is, but it should also help us to see other people in a different light and recognize that they are simply sinners or sinners saved by grace and it should help us to be less proud and more loving and kind and gentle to lead others to the Savior that we have, the only means of forgiveness that is Christ, the ultimate heir of Jacob, so that they might have what we have. A God who lives with us, loves us, walks with us and reveals himself to us. We find if we live our lives the way the world wants us to, we're always going to be like Jacob. We're going to go to bed with Leah and we're going to wake up expecting Rachel but never getting it. We're going to find that we go into circumstances and situations expecting something wonderful and it will never live up to that. We will wake up and realize that we've been tricked and what we've been given is a fraction of the thing that we were promised in the first place. That's what sin will always do. That is what Satan always does. It's the way of the world. It will never deliver on its promises to you. It cannot. You were made for God. And so living for sin and for the ways of this world will never satisfy. We find we will always end up, ultimately, being a bit like Leah. We will be grieved again and again and again because this world, in promising us much, delivers us little and we will constantly come back to it, asking again and again for love for care, for protection, for safety, for whatever it might be, and it cannot be delivered. We need to be a little bit like Leah and see that God alone is the one who is sufficient for us, for our needs, for uh, our worship. And God will guide us to see his involvement in our lives through circumstances that we face, however hard they may be, So that even in our weakness, in our distress, and in our frustration, He will be revealed to us as our sufficient, loving God and Father, 
who's provided us with a perfect saviour in his son when he didn't have to so that we might live and walk with him and know him as he knows us. God will reveal himself to us whatever is happening around us. And we find lastly that the Lord will fulfill his promises whatever we face in chapters 30 through to 31. In chapter 30 verses 1 to 24 we find that Jacob and Rachel, now married, can't have children as it was with Isaac and Rebekah, as it was with Abraham and Sarah. That theme just keeps coming up again and again. And what follows is a dreadful back and forth between Rachel and Leah because Rachel uh, recognizes that Leah can have children. A number of sons have been born and so they compete for Jacob's affections. And they do so in the most awful of ways where Jacob is passed backwards and forwards between Rachel and Leah and their maidservants and just told on the day that you'll be going to bed with so-and-so this evening and then tomorrow it'll be somebody else and then the week after it'll be somebody else. And he's sort of passed backwards and forwards as these women compete for his affections as the, the, the top wife in his household. Who can have the most and the best children? It's horrendous. And it finally all comes to an end when Rachel has a boy And Jacob can head back home to the promised land and pursue the birthright given to him now that he has a son and heir. Now pause for a moment and imagine how that felt for Leah. He has plenty sons and heirs from her and her servants. And yet it didn't matter. All he wanted was a son by Rachel. And God delivers on his promise that he will have a son that will carry that line on. And ultimately it does come uh, through Rachel. And so Jacob leaves Laban's country. And as he leaves, Laban offers him the chance to name his wages for all the hard work that Jacob has done in uh, the, the country of his uncle. And we find that again Laban tries to trick Jacob. This guy is unbelievable. But Jacob just about beggars him. Because God intervenes and through a very strange story, but through a miraculous intervention by God, he aids Jacob to ensure that he isn't tricked by Laban. And quite the reverse, Jacob leaves with the vast majority, it seems, of the wealth of Laban's household in a way that could never have been possible were it not for God's miraculous intervention. It's not just that Jacob's a really smart guy. God intervenes. And it's clear from the story, uh, if you read in chapters um, Uh, 30 into 31, that God alone has brought this situation about. And as Jacob heads back home to the promised land, look at the story now compared to the beginning in chapter 28. The child of promise, the seed of a woman that has come from Adam and Eve, through Abraham, through Isaac, is now coming through uh, Jacob and Rachel. They're heading back home with the child of promise. They're heading back home to a land of promise because they're going back to the the land of Canaan and they're going back with more wealth and power than Jacob left with. In fact, it's not unreasonable to assume that he is almost, if not more, wealthy and powerful than Isaac and Rebekah were and he carries all of that with him back into this land. God continually blesses those who he is using to bring about his end to bring about a saviour. And we find that he is um, going back to be a blessing to the nations. He cuts a covenant with Laban that no harm will befall his family or lands with God. And that the gods 
of Laban, as well as the God of the Bible, are to act as, as witnesses. So uh, Jacob sets up a, a, a pillar and a cairn of stones is erected um, and uh, these are to act as witnesses that a, a, an agreement has been made, a covenant has been arranged between these two men that God is promising that judgment will not fall upon this man or his household, even in spite of all the trickery and deceit that Laban has showed towards God's promised son. The Lord is fulfilling his promises to Jacob in ways that Jacob could never possibly have imagined, couldn't have seen at the time. And yet now, as he journeys back, you see all the promises of God slowly beginning to be fulfilled. And the Lord will fulfill his promises to us, whatever and wherever we are, whatever we're facing at the moment, regardless of how unlikely it appears that he will, because it is not a question of our faithfulness, as crucial as it is that we are faithful to him. It's a question of his faithfulness to his people. Through unlikely circumstances, we find that God will fulfill his promises to us. Through difficult and challenging circumstances, Jacob is lied to, is cheated out of an inheritance, is um, deceived on his wedding night, is, um, is as he leaves, deceived as to the, the inheritance that he will take away. And yet through all of that, God intervenes. Laban meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And that's the constant Um, a constant thread of the story of Genesis. Man means it for evil, and yet God means it for good. There is intention on both sides, and yet the Lord works out his plans and his purposes through the most unlikely of events and of people. And the same is true for us today. Laban fulfills God's promise to have descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth, and all begins to be worked out as Jacob is equipped to go home and be the father of a nation. He's been trained and built up and made ready and provided for through his time with Laban. And as it is with us, as we go about our days, we find that, yes, it is difficult to live as a Christian man or woman, a Christian young person or child today. And yet we find through the interactions we have with others, even though they may be difficult, through the rejection of friends and family, through the challenges of figuring out how do we live in the present age with all of its moral decline and decay as faithful people, when people will hate us for what we believe, taking a stand on what Scripture says, we find through that very rejection, through the pain and the struggle, as well as the joys and the blessings, through it all, God will fulfill his promises to us. He will never leave us or forsake us. He has forgiven our sin and will go on dealing with sin in our lives to make us more, more holy, more mature, so that we will one day be mature and lacking nothing. Truly children of God. And through all of our experiences, God will bring that about. It's why Peter says in his epistles that we aren't to be fearful and to flee from trials and difficulties, to just try and get through them and get away out the other side, because through that experience, God will make you more mature. He will refine you and build you up. And Peter knows more than most exactly what that means. We will cringe at the sins we've committed of the past week or month or year. We will get frustrated at other people who let us down, who deceive us. We will be fearful for the rejection we will face from this world. And yet through it all, God will work in us and through us for his 
own glory and for our blessing. We find in this section of Genesis that the Lord will be with us wherever we go, however unlikely that may be. That he will reveal himself to us whatever is happening. Again, however unlikely it seems to us that he can or will in that time or that place. And the Lord will fulfill his promises to us whatever we face, however impossible it seems to us that he could do so. Because he is able. He is our sovereign Lord, the creator of the world, and the one who will one day draw all things to a conclusion where Christ will reign and rule over the new heavens and the new earth, and a people beyond number will gather before his throne to worship him. The question is whether we will be in that people, in that place at that time, whether we have cast ourselves upon Christ and whether we have walked in faithfulness with him, regardless of the circumstances we face. Let's pray together that that would be our desire. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. And we ask, Lord, that in these uncertain days, these days of great challenge and struggle for your people here in uh, Livingston, Lord, we ask that you would be with us, bless us with the knowledge of your presence, reveal to us through your word and by your spirit the way you would have us go. And Lord, assure us, comfort us that you are in control and you are leading us on. Heavenly Father, we ask all this that we might live for you and for your glory. And we ask it all, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And now as you prepare to go out into this coming week to live for God, I want you to go knowing the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Saviour through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forever. Amen.